5, Daniel chapter 5, and we'll read the chapter together. Verse number 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass, of iron and of wood and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and rode over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Babylon, whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever, let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jury? I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee, that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now, if, <coughs> excuse me, if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and of a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O <coughs> thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honour. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew and whom he would keep alive, he kept alive, and whom he would set up and whom he would be put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast's. And his dwelling was with the wild asses, and they fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruleth or ruled in the kingdom of men, and whom he appointeth over it whomsoever 
and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver, gold, brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, neither hear nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar and the clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. Now that's our reading. So if you're following this uh, through Daniel, then the timeline is interesting when you arrive at chapter 5. So here's some dates. This event occurs approximately in our calendar, certainly about October 539 BC. So 500 years before Christ. Now, in relation to the other events of Daniel, it sits in this way. It's about 66 years since the fall of Jerusalem and the captivity of Daniel. He's been there for 66 years or so. 25 years have passed since Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and was made to uh, what looks like a breakdown. And then he was humbled and restored to his kingdom. It's 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar's death in 562 BC. Now, some family history in the Nebuchadnezzar family. I don't know what his second name would be, but King Nebuchadnezzar's family. So since Nebuchadnezzar, there's been a succession of kings that have reigned for a very short time in Babylon. And eventually, in 556 BC, Um, There was a man who came to the throne who wasn't a direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. It appears that he may be married into the family. And Belshazzar is his son. Now, let me see if I can say this name. Nabonidus. I don't know if I'll say that too often. Nabonidus was the man and Belshazzar was his son. Now, throughout the chapter, Belshazzar speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as his father. And he's referred to in that way. But it would be in the same way that, for example, the people of Israel referred to David as their father or Abram as their father. He wasn't actually a direct son in the sense of um, father-son relationship, but he traced his heritage back to Nebuchadnezzar, who was one of the most famous kings, certainly um, the last famous king before um, Belshazzar. Now, some military history, that's the family history and that's the timeline The military history shapes what's happening here. So Nabonidus took an army, 553 BC, to put down a rebellion and he went away from Babylon and he made Belshazzar co-regent in his absence. So Belshazzar is ruling, he's the second man in the kingdom, which is why he can only promise Daniel to be the third man in the kingdom, because he's the second. And Nabonidus is still nominally the king, but he's not in Babylon reigning, according to secular historians. 
He had built a royal palace in the Arabian Peninsula and he had gone down and based himself there, leaving Belshazzar to reign the Babylonish area of this empire. And so Belshazzar is in the capital. During these years, by the way, that Daniel has his visions of chapter 7 and chapter 8. The vision of the four beasts occurs in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. The vision of the goat and the ram appear in the third year of his reign. Now, the Babylonian Empire had been um, diminishing for some time, declining. And the Medo-Persian Empire had been growing in power. And they'd come from the south to wage war against the Babylonian Empire. And eventually they had come to Babylon, the heart of the empire, to bring their war to there. And so Nabonidus had raised an army, come back to Babylon to lead the army, but was defeated in battle. And he fled and left Belshazzar again in the capital. And that's where we come into the story. Belshazzar is there, but Babylon is surrounded by the Medo-Persian army when you come to chapter 5. Belshazzar is the king, but actually, I suppose, his, his, his father, Nabonidus, is actually uh, still nominally the co-region and king, but away, defeated um, down in the south in Arabia. Now, a little about Babylon itself. Babylon was a fortress city. The historians tell us from their excavations that the outer walls of Babylon were about 17 miles in circumference and were so thick that you could race multiple chariots along the walls together side by side. So they were so thick that they would bear that. And the walls also had a system of, of high towers um, which protected the walls and from which the soldiers would rain down arrows and spears and attackers. Inside of that outer wall system, there was a system of inner walls um, with a water moat between the outer walls and the inner walls. In addition to that, the river Euphrates actually flowed from outside the city right through the centre of Babylon, but that in turn was also bordered by walls and therefore was uh, protected against a river assault. They had also prepared against siege by laying up vast quantities of supplies, which they reckoned would last for many years, of food and so forth, and they had fresh water within the city. So Babylon seemed to be absolutely secure as a city, even although the Babylonish army itself had been defeated outside the city and the rest of the empire was lost. And then we arrive at chapter 5. And you've heard of fiddling while Rome burned, that expression. Well, Belshazzar's having a feast when the army of Babylon's destroyed, the city's surrounded, and it's like something in, um, in a modern or uh, semi-modern analogy. It's a bit like um, them having a big feast in Hitler's bunker with the Red Army of the Soviet Union in Berlin itself. That's the sort of scenario you have here in chapter 5. So it's strange to be feasting while the city is under siege, but that's nonetheless what Belshazzar is doing. <coughs> and it says in verse 1, he made a great feast and he's got a thousand of his lords in that building, in that room, feasting with him. And as part of that, he being the head of it, you would think that the power and all the praise which he would receive at this banquet would be sufficient, it would be palpable, but it was insufficient for this man's ego and pride. And the circumstances also were such that he does something which was not a good idea. 
He wants more glory. He wants more extravagance. He wants more renown. He wants to be associated with Nebuchadnezzar, the, the great successful military leader who established the Babylonish Empire. And so while this feast is going on, in verse 2, he commands the vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar, that is the king back up the line of succession, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. Now we know what these vessels of gold and silver were because right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, when the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, he also took some of the vessels of the house of God. So why at this point does Nebuchadnezzar ask for these particular vessels, treasures, to be brought out of the treasure house into this feast? I mean, I can't imagine Nebuchadnezzar was sitting, eating off paper plates and sort of um, foam cups or whatever. They would have been the best of gold and silver um, cups and vessels already on display and used. So it's not just the fact that they're of value, it's not just the fact that they were of gold, uh, that they were precious, etc. There is a a greater significance in these things. So these are no ordinary vessels. These were the tokens and signs of Nebuchadnezzar's triumph over Israel and over the God of Israel. Because these were the means by which the God of Israel was worshipped, the utensils that were part and parcel of the house of Israel of Jehovah, of Yahweh, and this was establishing Nebuchadnezzar's triumph over Israel and over the God of Israel, to all intents and purposes. And it seems that Belshazzar wants people to think back to these glories, and so they take the vessels of gold and silver, and as they use them in verse 4, they drink wine and praise the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone. So they're using the utensils that were to be used for the worship of the living God to worship idols. That's what's being done. It is arrogance. Now, it's arrogance to have the feast. It's arrogance in the face of overwhelming force and an enemy army round about the city. But it's now arrogance before the living God and blasphemy as they worship idols using these things. One writer said this, A thousand hands clenched around vessels made for God's holy temple. A thousand voices raised to the glory of false gods of wood and stone. A thousand souls forsaking the God who knit them in their mother's wombs, breathed life into their lungs, created the earth beneath their feet and was at that moment sustaining each and every beat of their hearts. A thousand voices and hands in active rebellion to the one who created them. That's what's going on in that room. It's a scene of intentional blasphemy against the living God, calculated to mock Israel and Israel's gods. And it was because later on, Daniel says, you knew all about this, Belshazzar. You knew about Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. Verse 22, thou his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thy heart, though thou knewest all this. He knew the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Israel, as we've read them in Daniel. And still he decided to mock God and to worship Baal and Marduk and Ishtar and toast them with the emblems and vessels that should have been used in the worship of God. So that's what you have there at the beginning of the chapter. 
blatant, um, explicit idolatry and blasphemy against God intentionally and with full knowledge on the part of the king. So you come to verse 5 down to verse number 9 and you have, you know, uh, the hand writing on the wall. It's interesting that it says the fingers of the hand. The fingers of a man's hand. I don't know if they were just the fingers or there was the hand. You know, if you're telling stories to the children and using the, the flannographs, you just have a hand up there, um, a disembodied hand. Well, this event has been mocked by historians as never taking place. In fact, Belshazzar's existence was mocked by historians. And so was Daniel's. Until less than 100 years ago, they were digging and the archaeologists found evidence of both the place, the room that this took place in, or could have taken place in, and the fact that there is an intact plaster wall as well within that room, and also evidence of the existence of Belshazzar has also been discovered. And the biblical account has been vindicated again. So this disembodied hand appears writing strange words. Look at the effect on Belshazzar. A man who's got a thousand of his lords in the room, who's triumphing over the God of Israel, suddenly is a terrified wreck. And it says explicitly his knees were knocking together and his, his, his stomach was beginning to lose control a bit. He was absolutely terrified of what he saw in an instant. One writer refers to this, and I'm quoting C.S. Lewis, has a sentence in his book called Miracles, in which he writes about people who fashion a God after their own making, a God they can manage and a God they can control. They're like children, C.S. Lewis said, in a room upstairs playing games, imagining that they are burglars, that they're the bad guys who unexpectedly, while playing, hear something, a real footstep in the hall, a noise in the house. And then suddenly they stop playing and they get quiet and afraid reality is approaching. And so it was with those who play theologian or invent God and deny reality. When the real God turns up, it's terrifying. And that's what happens with Belshazzar. That will happen to everyone. Some people will have that experience on earth, and God turns up in their, in their life story. Some will not have it to eternity. But there will come a point in the experience of every individual when the terrifying reality of the living God will dawn upon their soul. Part of the gospel is to bring a person to that experience in time before they have it in eternity. And it's that moment when someone realises that there is someone bigger than them, bigger than this world, bigger than this universe, and how small we are. And he is in that position. He's in absolute panic. And so in verse 22, he's actually shouting for the wise men. Sorry, before verse 23. He's shouting for the wise men to come in in the section before the Queen speaks, down in verse 10. And there is this desperation, and he's willing to throw, I mean, who would want to be third person ruling a king with the army of the Medo-Persians round about? But, you know, it's like shifting the deck chairs in the Titanic. Um, but that's what he offers, and, and he's offering untold wealth, etc., to someone who can give him the answer and interpretation of this. 
And so in verse 22, the king spake and said to the, the wise men, um, no, no, sorry, verse 7, the, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the king spake to the wise men of Babylon, whosoever shall read this writing, show me the interpretation, etc., etc. And the wise men, in spite of all their offer, are absolutely baffled. Again, they don't come out well in the book of Daniel. They're forever getting conundrums put to them that they can never answer. And then the queen speaks in verse 10 down to verse 12. Probably not Belshazzar's wife, because we've learned that his wife's plural and concubines are already at the feast. So this is someone who wasn't there, who then comes in and Likely, she would be the queen mother um, in that structure, that household structure. She's very knowledgeable of what happened with Nebuchadnezzar and, and begins to recount it all. I won't go through it in detail, but she recounts Daniel's multiple qualifications that result in Nebuchadnezzar appointing him as the chief of all the wise men. And now she's directing Belshazzar, go and get this man. He's the man who in the days of Nebuchadnezzar could, could give the interpretation of dreams, was made the chief of the wise men and so forth. Uh, and she says, uh, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. Now she's not a true believer in the living God, but she recognises Daniel was special and Daniel helped out in Nebuchadnezzar's um, trials when he wanted answers to similar questions. And so Daniel would be about 80 years old at this stage. And he had obviously not been meeting with the wise men or counted as one of them in his latter years. But the queen confidently asserts Daniel should be called and is called. And from verse 17, after the king has spoken to Daniel, from verse 17 down to verse 24, you have Daniel's answer to the king. And it's interesting, Daniel goes into sermon mode before he goes into interpretation mode. And this will be the last sermon this man hears. He'll be dead the next day. And here is opportunity. And here is, right at the end of his life, though he doesn't know it, and a man speaking for God into his life. And he's got less than 24 hours to live. And Daniel rebukes him. He doesn't want his money. He says, let thy gifts be to thyself. Give thy rewards to another. But he said, I'm going to tell you the interpretation. But before I tell you that interpretation, I've got something to say to you. Verse 18, he begins to preach. And he says, listen, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom. And he's just knocking him down, down, down. You're worshipping gods, as you go on, an inanimate, that, 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 that are mute, that are things. He says, I'm going to speak to you about the most high God. And I'm going to tell you that the man that you worship, Nebuchadnezzar, that you trace back all the blessings and, and all the glories of this empire to, that man actually received his kingdom and his majesty and his glory and honour from the God that you've been blaspheming. And he, he, he drills it home to, to this man, Belshazzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had received everything and then he'd been humbled and humiliated 
And he, he goes through that as well in verse 19. For the majesty gave him all people, nations, languages, trembled and feared and all the rest of it. And in verse 20 he says his heart was lifted up, his mind hardened in pride. He was deposed and he was down. And we know the story in verse 21. And he's like an animal. And he's eating and living like an animal. And he's learning the lesson that you haven't learned, Belshazzar. And he's learning a lesson that you know about. For he says in verse 22, none of this is new. And you yet, you haven't done what Nebuchadnezzar did, Belshazzar. You have not humbled your heart, though you knew all about this. It's brutal. And the application is brought to bear upon this man. Now remember, this man will have known this story for 20 or 30 years. He knew all about it. He knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but he's chosen to live a different way. He's chosen a different path. And at the end of his life, he is blaspheming the Most High God who had so easily and completely humbled his predecessor, the man that he most admired. And in verse 23, you have a little verse which is the ultimate condemnation at the end of it. It says this. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. There it is. This is the summary of this man's life. Your life and breath are in the hands of the living God. Your life story is in the hands of the living God. Yet you have not glorified him. You've not glorified him. That, by the way, is the epitaph of every unbeliever who's ever lived on earth. Your breath is in the hand of a God you don't believe in. Your life has been under the sovereign authority of a God you don't believe in. And in your life, you have not glorified it's Romans chapter 1. Instead of worshipping the creator, you worship the creature. And instead of being thankful, you've been far from thankful. And you have not glorified God in your life. And therefore, there is a moment of accounting. And here it comes to him. And he is condemned. Again, another writer said this. Every time he took a breath, it was God's will that he would do so. The course of his life, the way it turned like a river, like a stream, was in the hand of God. Every moment of his existence was a gift from God. Yet at the end of his life, God is mocked by him. It is a definition of insanity. To mock the God who holds your breath in his hand and the course of life in his hand. That's what men do all the time. Belshazzar has led his own family and nation into a pathway of gross error, into immorality, into blasphemy, and encouraged others. And so, as Paul says to the Galatians, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Sometimes we don't think that verse is true in our world today but it is true God is not mocked people will blaspheme he's not mocked and 
the hand of God had written. God had intervened in this man's life. Now he comes to the interpretation, which is the last part of the chapter. And the words, mini, mini, tickle, you farsen, are interpreted, and the interpretation sits on the, on the surface of the passage. And he's been told, mini means numbered, and it's said twice, and to emphasise that the days of Belshazzar's reign have been numbered by God, determined by God. God is in control, not him. And his life has been weighed. His days have been numbered and his life has been weighed. And so there has been an assessment made of this man's life by God. And the last little word means just this. He's come up short comes up short. And the judgment is this, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. You're going to lose your kingdom and he will lose his life. Babylon's finished. Now, Daniel was a courageous man. Now, we know that from previous chapters, but even at the age of 80, he hadn't lost anything of his, of his courage. And he will say the right thing regardless of the consequences. And the consequences were already in play, according to the historians, as these words were being interpreted. The Greek historian Xenophon, who I don't regularly read, um, but I did read this passage of his account, which is a quite interesting account of the fall of Babylon. And he gives us details of what the Medo-Persian Empire was doing as this was happening. Remember, this is a massive city. And the Persians had been working away and that night they diverted the Euphrates River away. And the river was no longer flowing through the city. And what the army did was this, they used the riverbed to enter the city. And it was a time of complacency and festival, not just in Belshazzar's um, palace, but throughout the city. The result was that the army was able to enter and word did not come to the palace until the whole army was in the city. And when the army was in the city, the city was lost. <clears throat> According to Xenophon, the invaders actually entered the palace during this feast and overpowered the king and executed him in the palace. So what do we learn from this chapter? Here are three things to learn. Number one, God keeps his promise. Remember, there had been a vision granted to Nebuchadnezzar of that um, head of gold, which would be replaced by the arms and torso of silver that happened that night. The Medo-Persian Empire took control of the heart of the Babylonish Empire on that night. God keeps his promise. Secondly, God is in absolute control of world events, global events, then and now. It's interesting that when you read the two accounts, the biblical account and the secular account of the fall of Babylon, that they differ greatly in perspective. And so, for example, the secular account focuses on the political and the administrative failures of Belshazzar and of the city and attributes its fall to those things. When you come to the Bible, Daniel focuses on the moral failures of Belshazzar and the nobility of Babylon. That's the reason why the empire fell. 
And by the way, that's the reason why empires still fall. They fall through moral corruption. And the administrative political machinations are not the cause of empires falling, it's the other way about. And Daniel focuses on that. Secular history look at the death of Belshazzar and his kingdom from a political point of view. But the Bible describes it from a spiritual point of view. You see, which one's real? Well, they're both real. But which one is the driver? Which is the most significant? Well, obviously, it's the moral failure and the spiritual explanation, which is the truth of the matter. The rest of it is just the visible outworking of those things. So it is in our world. We see things change rapidly, especially today. We see things change globally. We see the rise of world powers. We see the fall of world powers. And we've lived through some of it with the fall, for example, of the Soviet Union and things like this. And it appears that there is a political explanation. It appears there's an economic explanation, a secular explanation. But as Christians, we understand this. There is a spiritual explanation and there is moral failure very often at the heart of these things. The moral failure here is pride. The sin was blasphemy and failing to give God the glory which is his. Secular accounts focus on the diverting of the river as being the key event. But the city actually fell because God's judgment on a wicked nation and a wicked king was taking place. That's why it fell. And so let us encourage our hearts that God is in control of global events. And lastly, for all of us, we ought to number number our days, as the psalmist says, lest God number them for us. And he had not numbered his days. He had not realised that his life was rapidly coming to a conclusion. He's a bit like the man in Luke 12, the rich farmer who was a fool and lived complacently and was told, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Belshazzar failed to learn from history. Belshazzar was arrogant, proud. Belshazzar was complacent. All the things that should not mark us as Christians. We shouldn't be proud, we shouldn't be arrogant, we shouldn't be complacent. We should have absolute trust in the God who is in control of global events and our lives. Who numbers them, who knows them. Our breath is in his hand, our ways are in his hand. Trust the Lord to just bless that meditation on that chapter.